Well, one of the most famous Bible verses in all of Scripture comes to us from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 11. And you may not be familiar with it, which is totally okay, but some of you might be, and that verse reads this way, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans to not harm you, plans to give you a hope, plans to give you a future. And I think right away we can see why this is one of the most famous passages, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. This sounds great, right? I mean, you read this and you're like, sign me up. God's going to give me a hope. He's going to give me a future. There's no harm. Give me a pen. I'm signing. You're signing. We are all signing, right? You can see why this verse gets lifted up and slapped onto t-shirts, why it gets lifted up and it gets painted onto coffee mugs. But the problem, the problem with lifting this verse up and running with it is that there's a whole lot of other verses that are around it. Anytime, anytime you see a Bible verse and only one Bible verse, you ought to ask yourself, I wonder what the verses around that verse say. What is the context? And in the case of Jeremiah 29, 11, well, it's quite the context. Jeremiah, the book of the Bible, is named after him. He penned the book. He was a prophet, someone tasked with communicating God's message to God's people. And we've actually talked about Jeremiah already this year because our verse of the year comes to us from the book of Lamentations. That was the very first chapel of the year all the way back in August, Lamentations chapter 3. That book was also written by Jeremiah. And that book, Lamentations, comes right after this book, Jeremiah. He penned both of these. And Lamentations is about Jeremiah lamenting and grieving the destruction of the capital city of God's people, Jerusalem. Jeremiah is all about the context and the message that surrounded and led up to that event, the destruction of the city, of the capital city of God's people, Jerusalem. Jeremiah's message was one of difficulty and challenge. I said that back in the summer, and it remains true here today. Of course, there was hope. You can pop Jeremiah 29.11 back on the screen. What's more hopeful than Jeremiah 29.11? Of course, prophets did preach messages of hope, but far, 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 far more of their message was of challenge and difficulty. You see, God sent his people, prophets, to remind them that if they did not turn from their wicked ways, if they did not turn from their wicked ways to turn back to God, because here's the thing, right? God is loving, God is patient, God is kind, and yet also God cannot stand for sin. God cannot stand for rebellion. God cannot stand for brokenness in his world because it wasn't his design, and so he must act against it. But God is loving, God is patient, God is kind, God cares for his people. So what does he do? He sends prophets, he sends messengers to remind the people, that yes, God is patient, but he will stand against sin. He will move against sin. He will. And Jeremiah lived a hard life with this message that he preached. It was not popular. You don't win popularity contests by being one of God's prophets. 
He suffered from depression. He got beat up a lot. He got thrown in a pit because of the messages that he was preaching. You don't win popularity contests by being one of God's prophets. And unfortunately, God's people did not heed Jeremiah's messages. So after a long, long time, after God was patient and kind, his judgment against his people came. His punishment against his people came in the form of capture and captivity. The global superpower of Babylon, you may remember hearing about them in history class. The global superpower of Babylon conquered God's people and they had a wickedly effective strategy of destabilizing entire regions. Right, you have to think about the moment that we were in in history here. This is a global superpower that is taking over enormous chunks of land, conquering entire groups of people. How do they maintain that level of control? And global superpowers of the day had different strategies. Babylon was to round up all of the best and brightest leaders and bring them back with them to Babylon. So they didn't bring everyone back to Babylon. They only brought the leaders because who are a people without leaders? So they stripped leadership from these regions that they were conquering and brought them back in chains to Babylon. That was their strategy. That was how they maintained control over the areas and peoples that they were conquering. So they did this with God's people. Started marching them back, started marching leaders back to Babylon, and that is the context of Jeremiah chapter 29. Look at verse 1. This is the opening verse of Jeremiah 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, okay? The surviving elders among the exiles, the leaders, the surviving leaders among the exiles, because they're being exiled, they're being carted off, right? The, the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, leaders, and all the other people, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king. That's the king of Babylon who did this, right? The prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's the context in which we find the most famous or one of the most famous verses in all the scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is how the chapter begins. And track with me here for a moment. Don't, don't lose me on this. In this moment in history, there only would have been one of maybe just a couple copies of this letter. Printing press hadn't been invented yet. That was Gutenberg in the year 1500. You can't just throw this thing into a Xerox machine and run off a bunch of copies, but you're tracking with me. This is addressed to more than one person, right? That's a lot of people, the elders, the priests, the prophets. So how do you get one letter, maybe two, maybe three, how do you get a couple copies of a letter that would have been painstakingly written by hand to a whole bunch of people? Oh, and by the way, not all of the people that the letter is addressed to can read. Most of them probably could because they were the leading class, but some of them couldn't. So how do you do it? How do you solve the problem? with a public reading. So we don't know for sure, but it is entirely possible, picture this with me, it's entirely possible that God's people are in chains being carted away into captivity. They're on the road to Babylon, they've been conquered, their capital city has been destroyed, they're on a forced march And some guy shows up on the side of the road and starts reading. He starts reading. 
He's yelling at the top of his lungs. He's shouting because he wants everyone to hear this letter that he's got from Jeremiah. He's going on and on and on. And then he hits verse 11. (laughs) Remember, you're in chains. He hits verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Let me ask you, how bad would you want to punch that guy? (laughs) I mean, talk about missing the moment, right? You are entering into what will be some of the most difficult days of your life. And this guy's over here talking about how God has plans not to harm you. How God has plans to give you a hope and a future. It's like, can you see what's happening, buddy? Now, I've asked you to imagine yourself as one of the people hearing Jeremiah 29 read yourself, but I actually want to, this morning, introduce you to one of those people. His name is Daniel. And while we don't know for sure, it is almost certain that Daniel would have been familiar with this letter. Because you see, Daniel was one of God's captured people in this moment. Daniel was one of God's young, bright, exceptional leaders that Nebuchadnezzar carted back off to Babylon so that the region that he had conquered would remain destabilized. Daniel was a young man when this happened. He might have even been a teenager. Almost certainly he was younger than every single one of you. That's Daniel. Daniel's most famous moment His highlight reel, what he was trending on Twitter for, is when he was thrown into a lion's den and lived to tell about it. But what many people miss about that story is that by that point, Daniel's an old man. He's probably even in his 80s, maybe 90s. Daniel had survived for decades in Babylon, serving under the leadership of kings who were incredibly hostile towards the God that Daniel ultimately served. Somehow, some way, Daniel was able to thrive and even flourish under a political leader that disagreed with him strongly. A political leader that disagreed with him strongly. And, and to be honest, that's stating it lightly. And that's how this connects, right? Because today is actually the second week of our teaching series on the topic of politics. <laughs> our second week of the teaching series that we're doing here in chapel on the topic of politics, right? And this is sort of the thing you're not supposed to do. I grew up with like, ooh, I don't know, you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion. You could offend people and it's hard and the conversation will get a little bit wacky. And here we are (laughs) talking about religion and politics, but I don't know if you've noticed we have a national election in this country that's happening next week. In fact, I know you've noticed because it's impossible not to notice. Now, maybe you're not a politics kind of guy or a politics kind of girl and you're just sort of sick of it. Or maybe you've been sick of it long before any of this started and you just don't really try to think about politics all that much. You'd say, you know what I do? I just sort of stick my head in the sand and I just sort of ignore that politics is a thing. But I know that you know about it because I'm convinced that even if that's what you're doing about politics and about this election, you had your head in the sand trying to ignore it and then do you know what happened? 
a little groundhog <laughs> burrowed underneath and, and came up right where you had your head in the sand. And you're like, hello, Mr. Groundhog, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm here to talk to you about politics. <laughs> and you're like, but I have my head in the sand. I'm trying to ignore it. And, and the groundhog handed you a political fl flyer and said, yes, I know. But Barbara Belay wants you to vote for her anyway. <laughs> right? This is what happened to you. Even if you're trying to ignore it, you can't. It's everywhere around us right now. And my conviction about chapel is this. If we're not talking about stuff that is happening, if we're not talking about the questions you have or don't have but I think you should have, if we're not talking about real stuff, what are we doing here? I'm wasting your time. So maybe it's not, quote, politically correct to talk about politics, to mix politics and religion, but we have to do it. So last week, Professor Gabrielson did a great job launching us off the ground in this series. Great sermon. If you missed it, it's on the I Attended app called Be Political, Not Partisan. Be Political, Not Partisan. But so far this morning, I, I, I hadn't touched it. We started with Jeremiah 29. We're talking about Daniel a little bit. I wanted to set the stage because I wanted us to get to this point right here. Right here. Next slide. No matter who is in political power, God's people are called to faithful presence. No matter who is in political power, God's people are called to faithful presence. I think we learn this really powerfully from the life of Daniel. We can learn a lot of different stuff from the life of Daniel, but I think we learn this really, really powerfully. No matter who is in political power, God's people are called to faithful presence. Now, let's talk about that highlighted phrase for a moment, faithful presence. What is that? Well, it's a phrase I'm borrowing from a really, really smart guy named James Davison Hunter, and he wrote a really, really long and really, really good book called To Change the World. Everybody wants to change the world, right? Davison wrote a book about it. Davis and Hunter wrote a book about it, To Change the World. And one article that summarizes the book and defines what faithful presence is, it says this, faithful presence is the exercise of faith, hope, and love, the exercise of faith, hope, and love toward family, friends, and neighbors, and even enemies in all spheres, from the classroom to the government, from the dinner table, that's family, to the marketplace, that's jobs, that's work, from the neighborhood, to the world stage. World stage, what does that remind you of? Politics, right? All spheres, nothing is left untouched by this idea of God's people being faithfully present. Why, why do I know faithful presence is about God's people? The first three words, right? It's about faith, hope, and love. Those are three of the biggies for followers of Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, and love remain. Nothing else matters, faith, hope, and love remain, Paul says. So this is about what followers of Jesus ought to do. It's the exercise of faith, hope, and love toward all spheres. Nothing goes untouched. And actually, the most important word of this definition is a directional word. The most important word of this definition is the word toward. Because faithful presence moves toward. Faithful presence moves toward. It does not move away. It does not back away. Faithful presence moves toward. 
not from, not away. Faithful presence moves toward even when it's hard. Faithful presence moves toward even when it's complicated. It moves toward even when it's messy, even when it's broken, maybe especially when it's broken. Faithful presence moves toward. Faithful presence gets right in the middle of what is wrong, hard, and difficult and says, hey, I'm here, how can I help? I'm not leaving, how can I help? Faithful presence is a marine charging into battle. Faithful presence is the first responders. The first responders that went headfirst into the World Trade Centers, even though they knew they weren't walking out. But maybe I can save one. Maybe I can help one, too. <laughs> Faithful presence is a mom or a dad who is woken up at 3 a.m., and moves toward their fifth poopy diaper of the night. <laughs> that one's for me. We're pregnant. We're having another baby in January. I got to remind myself that even though it's smelly, <laughs> faithful presence moves toward, not away. Faithful presence finds a way to keep going even in the middle of difficult circumstances. And this idea defines Daniel's life. This idea is all over Daniel's life. From the drop in the book of Daniel, he is confronted with def difficult and messy situations, choices that are hard and complicated. But instead of disengaging, instead of moving away from, Daniel charges headlong in. He steps up, he steps in, he exercises faithful presence. And again, I cannot emphasize this enough. He did this in a political moment, in a political climate that was way more hostile than ours. Which might be hard to believe if you've been on Facebook recently. That anything could be more hostile than our moment in our country right now, but it is true. The situations that Daniel faced, politically speaking were literally, not figuratively, not literally a matter of life or death for him. But even still, he engaged. He remained. He was faithfully present. Listen, if you walked away from Dr. Gabrielson's message last week thinking, cool, I don't have to engage politics at all, you totally missed the point. That was not Tim's point. It's not my point. And frankly, the story of Daniel will not allow for that. No matter who is in political power, God's people are called to faithful presence. Politics is a major part of all of our lives, and ignoring it is something that we do to our own harm and to the harm of others. Do you plan to start a family? Politics matter to you. Do you plan to have a job or a home? Politics matter to you. If you have a family, are your kids gonna go to school? Politics matter to you. Do you wanna serve in a local church, either as a staff member or just as a congregant or a volunteer? Politics matter to you. Sometimes with politics, we think it's only about the controversial hot topics, the stuff that your uncle goes off about on Thanksgiving. And those topics matter. 
They are political conversations. They're worthy of our time. They're worthy of our discussion. They're worthy of our prayer. But politics, listen, politics is way more about boring stuff than it is about controversial stuff. And by boring stuff, I mean just the everyday stuff of life. It seems mundane, but it really matters. And here's the other piece of this too. Politics matter at all levels. They really, really do. Okay? They matter at all levels. But can I be honest with you? Politics matter more at a local level than they do at a federal, national level. More change happens and lives are affected by local politics than by national. National politics absolutely matters. Do not hear me saying they don't. But local politics matter more. But I know for me, I go into the ballot box and I'm like, well, I know who's running for president, but I don't know any of these other names. Shame on me. I, I had the legislative director of a United States senator, a friend of a friend, we were on the phone, and he said, I want you to do both things, but if you're only going to do one in terms of vote in a national election or serve on your local PTA school board, I'd rather you serve on your local PTA school board. That's like the second or third most powerful member of the team of a United States senator who's agreeing with me that as much as national politics matter, local politics matter more, okay? This is about the real stuff of real lives. This matters to God, and it should matter to us. And I'll be the first to raise my hand, both my hands, and say that I was guilty of moving away from politics for far too long. Certainly I did this when I was a college student, I was a college student during the election of 08, kind of a big one. We elected the first black president in the United States. Can I be honest with you that I remember very little about that election? Because I moved away. Don't do that. Don't be me as a college student. Be better than me. Move toward, think, ask questions. Bring your Christian faith if you have it to this conversation. Because I'll be honest, this may sound dramatic to you, but I realize now that backing away from politics because I felt like I didn't have time or I thought I didn't care or I thought it wasn't important or whatever, I was distracted by other things, that was a betrayal of my faith because God cares about this and I should too. Bring your faith, bring your Christian faith to this. Daniel certainly did. Daniel certainly did. Well, listen to the words of the United States senator, and this is not the one that the guy I know, but different U.S. senator. Listen to his words here. He writes this, James Lankford. From the founding of the United States, we believed as a nation that faith is not something you can require someone to take on and off like a uniform. Your faith is your most precious possession. It defines you, it motivates you, it centers you. Next slide. Simply stated, if your faith is something that you only do on weekends, it is not a faith, it is a hobby. Whew. Let's do that one again. <laughs> Simply stated, if your faith is something that you only do on weekends, it is not faith, it is a hobby. That's a gut punch for me. How about for you? Hobbies are weekend activities, but your faith penetrates every aspect of your life. Come on, James, preach. Now maybe you're a bit confused. Because you're thinking right now, you might be thinking right now about the separation of church and state. You're like, yeah, okay, I heard about that one, the separation of church and state. And maybe you're like, 
I don't get this quote. It doesn't agree with the separation of church and state. Okay, we got to talk about the separation of church and state. It is a brilliant idea. I'm so glad the founding fathers had it, but I think it's often misunderstood. We must seek to properly understand it. The idea of the separation of church and state is actually that we ought never establish a national religion. We ought not establish a national religion, and this is a great idea. I could not agree with this more. Because study church history with me. Study church history with me, right? The Christian church has gone most wrong in her history when we started requiring things of people. When we started telling them that it was illegal for them not to be a Christian, when we started telling them that it was illegal to not be a particular type of Christian, which is absolutely a thing that has happened more than once in history. Oh, you're that type of Christian? It's illegal. I will kill you for it. That's a real thing that happened. And it has no place in the kingdom of God. It's religious persecution and God hates it. Listen, do I want all people to follow Jesus? Yes. I am convinced more than anything else, it is the only place where you find life, real, actual life, the life you were created for. But I can't require you to do it. So the separation of church and state, insofar as we mean that we should never establish a national religion is a really good idea. But just like we can't require someone to put on a uniform of faith, we should not try to require them to take it off. You can't require someone to take it off. Requirement should have no place in this conversation. And it's not what the separation of church and state is about. Your Christian faith should inform every aspect of your life, including how you think about and live into the topic of politics. This was true for Daniel. It's clearly true for James Lankford, a United States senator, and it should be true for you too. Daniel never took his faith off I hope he never took his face off either. He never took his faith off even when it was almost certain to cost him his life. That's how he ended up in the lion's den. The most sensational part of that story is the fact that he was chucked into the lion's den as an 85 or a 90-year-old man and uh, you know, God showed up and closed the mouths of the lions. Think about that God with me. God showed up and said, no, lion, you will not eat this delicious meal that was dropped in here because I created you, lion, and I made you, lion, and I will close close your mouth. Think about that God with me. Think about how big and powerful that God is. Okay, that's the most sensational aspect of that story, but how he got into the den is actually pretty interesting too. You see, Daniel was so good that he survived a regime change. All right, so Babylon, global superpower led by Nebuchadnezzar. His story is fascinating. You should look it up sometime. Doesn't go so well for Nebuchadnezzar. Doesn't go so well for Babylon. The Persians come in. The Persians come in and they conquer the Babylonians. Think about this with me. What is the first thing that a CEO does when they acquire a company? They fire everyone because they don't know who they can trust and they bring in their own guys. All right, that's like today in a company. This is a war and Persia has just defeated the Babylons. 
In that instance, you're not just going to fire everyone, you're going to kill everyone. Do you know what Darius the Mede, Darius the Persian, the new king does? He's like, I'm going to hang on to this Daniel guy. That's how good Daniel was. So Nebuchadnezzar's out, Darius is in, and Daniel's still there being faithfully present. No matter who is in political power, God's people are called to faithful presence. So Daniel survives a regime change. He's running a whole bunch of stuff. He's in charge of basically everything. He's gotten promoted over and over and over again. And in the process, he has made some political enemies. Because there's people, there's men who think, that was my job. I should have gotten that one. Why is Daniel getting promoted? So they begin to search for anything they can find in Daniel's life that could cause him to trip up. That they could take to the king and say, wow, Daniel's not as good as you think he is. Look at this. We should have his job. They can't find anything. Nothing. Zip, zilch, nada. There is only one part of Daniel's life that they wonder if they could use. Three times a day, same time, every single day, Daniel stops whatever he's doing. He goes into his room, he goes by the window, and he kneels down. And what does he do when he's there? He prays to God. And it's a fairly public thing that he's doing because he's right near a window. And so these guys, they hatch a plan. It is a political plan, notice. And what do they think? They think maybe we could use that. So on the download, they go to the king. And they're like, hey, Darius, wouldn't it be great if people prayed to you? They incept him, like Christopher Nolan style, right? Wouldn't it be great if people prayed to you? Darius is like, yeah, <laughs> that'd be awesome. Let's do it. They change the laws of the land. It's a political trap. They change the laws of the land. Darius puts his seal on it, his signet. His power is behind this law now. And it's now illegal to pray to anybody else but Darius. He has no idea that it's a political trap designed to throw off one of his most trusted and efficient and effective and beloved employees, Daniel, who serves God ultimately, but does some good work for Darius on the side. So Daniel, I'm imagining, hears about this, right? And if I'm Daniel, do you know what I do? I'm like, okay, um, I think I'll pray in my head for a while. <laughs> like God will understand, but not Daniel. I think if Daniel were here, I think Daniel would tell you that the secret sauce of how he was able to remain faithfully present through everything that he went through, the secret sauce of how Daniel was able to remain faithfully present is his deep and abiding relationship with God centered around this practice of praying three times a day. He'd probably done this every single day for decades. So the day after the law gets passed and Daniel knows that this is going to cost him his life, the first time appears for him to pray, and he walks into his room, he goes right by the window, and he kneels down, and he prays. And that, my friends, is how Daniel ended up in the lion's den. No matter who is in political power, God's people are called to faithful presence. Now, you might be wondering about how all of this connects to you, Hopefully it's been clear that I'm encouraging you toward a posture of faithful presence that moves toward politics, not away from it. But it's probably also clear to you that this is going to look a little bit different than Daniel. Hopefully, prayerfully, it will not become illegal for you to pray. 
That's one of the benefits of living in this great country. And listen, I love America. I'm grateful for America. I don't know that we've ever lived up to the ideals of this nation. I think we're still working towards that. But there's countries where what I am doing right now, preaching about the Bible and about Jesus, would get me shot. Right now in the world today, that's a reality. So I'm grateful for my freedom, okay? And we said some pretty idealized, soaring types of things in our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, And I think we're still fighting to live up to those ideals. Y'all, women couldn't vote in this country until 1919. It's 150 years of this country being around and we were like, you know what, women? We got this. It's too long. I could go on too, right? And listen, in the world today, there are countries where the freedoms we have are just, they're not even on the radar So we must be grateful. But being grateful and even being patriotic does not mean that we can't be honest. America's great. It is not the kingdom of God. I love America. I do not love it as much as the kingdom of God. I believe our president is an important person. They are not anywhere as close in importance to me as Jesus Christ. I think we can have both of those things be through to be true. I think we can live into the tension of that, right? And I want to work towards the ideals of this country. And politics is an important part of how we do that work. It's an important part of how we get to where we said we wanted to go, to where we said we wanted to be. And it is a privilege that we get to be part of the political process at all. I mean, Daniel worked in politics. He was employed in politics. And we can take that away from his story that that might be your calling. Maybe you should work in politics. We need faithful followers of Jesus who are exercising faithful presence in both of our modern political parties here in this country. We need that. But for many of us, it will not be our calling. It's not my calling, and it might not be your calling. And yet, we have this incredible gift in our country that even though we are, quote, ordinary citizens, even though, quote, we are ordinary citizens, we can still participate in the political process because of the way our country and our political system is set up. The majority of people throughout all of history and even today in the world don't have that right and privilege. And one of the things that I want to remind us of, of how we can do that, came to us last week from Professor Gabrielson. He gave us five tips. Five tips for how to be political Christians and how to gauge here. And all of these are good. We're going to talk about them more at length next week. Next week, the third week of this series, the final week of this series, we're going to have a panel, a prepared panel discussion, and we'll talk about these. So I'm not going to go into them right now, but I will highlight number five for you. We should work for a better society. We should fight for the ideals of this nation. We should do that in a variety of ways, including politics, but we should always long for God's kingdom. And this reference to God's kingdom from Tim's list last week reminds me of where we started our talk. It reminds me of Jeremiah 29, because at that moment in history, it looked like God's kingdom was crumbling. Didn't it? It looked like God's kingdom was falling apart. It looked like God's kingdom was coming apart at the seams and that it would be beyond repair. But friends, here's the honest truth this morning. Don't miss this. God doesn't lose. 
God doesn't lose, never has, never will. God is some record of wins and zero losses. God doesn't lose. Let's return to Jeremiah 29, 11, but let's back out a little bit and let's read more than just that one verse, starting with the verse before it, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, they're gonna have their day for 70 years, but when those 70 years are completed, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me after those 70 years. Then you will call on me and you will come to pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, where I have punished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into the exile. God's like, yes, it looks like I'm losing. Folks, I'm not losing. 70 years and then Babylon's gonna have her day. Guess who's coming in? The Persians. 70 years and I will allow for you. 70 years and I will cause you to be gathered back and I will bring you back to this place. Do you hear what God is describing here? It is faithful presence. Yes, he punished his people for their sins. Yes, he allowed the Babylonians to overtake and conquer them. Yes, things were going to be hard for them for a very long time, but God does not abandon. God does not lose. God does not walk away. God does not quit. God does not break his promises. God is faithful. God is steadfast. God is sure. You can be faithfully present in your life and your callings because God has been faithfully present toward you. Never abandoned, never broken, never walked away, always moved towards. And friends, nobody has been more faithfully present toward you. God has been in no way more faithfully present toward you than he has in Christ Jesus, than he has in Christ Jesus. Think of it with me. If faithful presence is moving towards brokenness and challenge, who did that more than Jesus? No one. Jesus, who moved towards the brokenness of our sin to save us. Jesus, who was sentenced to die a criminal's death on a cross based on made-up political charges. Jesus, who said, yes, I have a kingdom, but it is not of this world. Jesus, who is faithfully present even today in the midst of our brokenness by the way of his spirit. And Jesus, who is coming back one day again to right all wrongs mend all brokenness, and usher in fully his kingdom. What a day that will be. We can be faithfully present in all areas, including politics, because God has first been faithfully present toward us in Christ Jesus.